This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, uh, Rosemary Gibson, her recent book titled China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. Rosemary, welcome back to the program. David, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Rosemary is Senior Advisor at the Hastings Center and is Board Chair of the Alterum Institute, a nonprofit health systems research organization. Her full bio, of course, is posted on the podcast website. Listeners may recall I discussed medical errors with Rosemary in November 2013, and in June 2015, we discussed the question of whether or not we have healthcare in this country, or rather medical commerce, or the phrase we used for that discussion, the medical industrial complex. Today we'll discuss Rosemary and her co-author, Jernardin Prasad Singh's latest work, again titled China Rx, that details the extent to which the U.S. is dependent on the manufacturing of drugs and their active ingredients and medical devices, and the extent to which this dependence imperils both our health status and our nation's security. So with that, as a, a very brief overview introduction, let me ask more of a thematic question. Uh, since I noted we've discussed uh, two uh, subject interests of yours in the past, this book appears to be a product of those previous interests or your discussions on those topics, uh, in that imported uh, Chinese drugs uh, continue to beg or do beg patient safety questions, and the rapid offshoring of drug manufacturing by U.S. pharmaceuticals is not surprisingly largely or purely a profit play. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, the outsourcing of medicines to China, uh, David, are generic drugs increasingly, and the components to make them both for branded drugs and generics, uh, that certainly has been driven by price. Um, China has a lot of very talented chemists. They have uh, environmental laws that are not like the United States. Their consumer product liability is not what we are used to in this country. So that and many other factors make it have made it cheaper to do production in China. But recently... China's ramping up enforcement of pollution controls, the uh, current um, trade challenges, and uh, all that brings is making it harder for Western and American companies to do business there. So those transaction costs are increasing. But you're right. It's primarily a cost driver that has driven production to China. Okay, thank you. So throughout the book, you weave uh, this story about a tragic a certainly sad story about Dr. Bob Allen, and uh, I think it was um, to the extent useful in making your point. So this is the issue of uh, his experience relative to receiving uh, the drug heparin, which of course you may know, or listeners may know, is it's a widely used uh, blood thinner uh, medication. Can you just provide an, uh, an overview of, of that experience because it's exemplary of the patient safety issue or how these drugs can be dangerous because, and we'll get into this, to the extent to which, as they're imported to the U.S., the FDA or federal regulators are 
uh, able to uh, provide uh, adequate regulatory oversight. So again, uh, could you sure. give us an overview of Dr. Allen's uh, tragic um, experience? Sure. You know, David, I wrote this book in the public interest, and it's always important to show the human face of safety, in this case, our medicines when we're globalizing production. So the book opens with a story of Dr. Bob Allen, who is a 45-year-old healthy uh, physician trained at Johns Hopkins, and he walked into a hospital in Arizona with his family late at night. He knew he had a bleeding stomach ulcer, but like many physicians, he kind of postponed getting treatment, but finally it was time. And so because it was late at night, they decided to admit him uh, overnight and do an endoscopy the next morning. He received heparin the following morning, uh, several doses, and inexplicably he started having a heart attack at about 11 a.m., just less than 12 hours after being admitted to the hospital. So he went into the cath lab and he received two large doses of heparin and the doctors were deeply, deeply concerned that he was going into heart failure and his other organs were also starting to fail. This was uh, perplexing, to say the least, and terrifying for the family. A week later, his heart was removed and he was put on an artificial heart machine and the plan was for him to uh, try to recuperate to a better level and hope for a uh, multiple organ transplant. So while he's waiting um, in the hospital, uh, the following month he's listening to a television news report that reported contaminated heparin was found at a hospital in St. Louis. The FDA had gone in and traced some concerns they had with un unusual side effects in children. Uh, they traced it back to heparin that was... Um, whose active ingredient was made in China. So if you think about this gentleman listening to this report, and he turns to his wife, he's connected to the machine still for, to have his heart function, and says, I got a lot of heparin, I wonder if it was contaminated. And so this opens the story of, one, the outsourcing of our medicines and many of their key components uh, to China, the challenges with assuring the safety and quality of those products the human implications, as well as the you know, legal recourse. And today, fast forward 10 years, we have uh, recalls of blood pressure medicine. Half of a common blood pressure medicine, a generic, uh, was taken off the market. And the FDA went into a plant in China, and its inspection report is really quite telling. It found that the company uh, had see observed impurities that were shouldn't have been there. And instead of going back and looking at the manufacturing process and doing what we call today a root cause analysis, it just reprocessed batches but didn't change, find out what the cause was, and take corrective action in its manufacturing process. And so this blood pressure medicine got on the U.S. market and the global market, and it has a probable human carcinogen in it. So th this is a... Um, a breach of the standards that you and I and many others, all your listeners, have come to expect from our medicines that have been traditionally made in Western countries. So it poses real challenges that unfortunately are going to continue, and we write about them in China Rx.
Yes, thank you. And so before I, I go into um, regulatory oversight, it is, and you do trace sort of the transition in the industry of how rapidly this has occurred. So you mentioned uh, through or into the 90s, U.S., Europe, and Japan, your Mac manufacturers, you note in the text, 90% of the global supply of key ingredients for the world's medicines and vitamins. So in 20-odd years, uh, can you explain to the extent that that has just rapidly uh, uh, changed and what uh, anyone schooled in economics could intuit this, but what explains, uh, you mentioned at the, uh, at the outset, you know, substantial numbers. I think you said 45,000 PhDs, uh, Chinese nationals are trained overseas that go home. And that's partially the explanation, but the, the transformation of in, this industry in the last 20 years has been remarkable. So could you, um, um, make sure, comment yeah. about how that's evolved? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, there are two major drivers, David. The first was the, uh, generic drug law. And all of us have benefited from lower prices of generic drugs. But lower price drove companies to find cheaper ways to make them. And that's when we began to see the outsourcing of particularly the key ingredients that give a medicine its therapeutic value. And these were offshored to places like China that was more than willing to, as its government, to make investments in the industry. And the second big driver that you know, we put the pieces of this puzzle together because it took three years to write this book and to understand the dynamics. The other piece was our trade policy. Mm-hmm, yes. We, yeah, we do, and who knew that? Whoever thinks that our trade policy affects our medicines, we documented that within a couple of years of the U.S. opening up free trade with China, that's when we saw the last penicillin plant in the United States close. And there's a fascinating story, really quickly, about how that happened. Uh, the Chinese government was investing in huge penicillin fermentation capability. And they, a handful of their companies flooded the global market with product that was below what U.S. and the other Western companies could sell it for, and they were driven out of business. We actually have data to show this. And then once those firms got control of that global market with a dominant share, prices went back up. And you and I unwittingly paid more for our penicillin. We saw the same thing happen with vitamin C. So anybody listening who takes a vitamin C uh, tablet or eats a hamburger roll or fruit juice and it has added ascorbic acid, it's probably coming from China. And there's clear documentation, in fact, an ongoing court case where a handful of Chinese companies, the same playbook, they dump it on the global market at below market price, and then they drive out U.S. and other producers, gain a dominant share, and then increase the price in this case, 700%. And there's a really interesting legal case that has been brewing that um, the Chinese government basically said, well, you can't charge our companies with antitrust violations because as a matter of Chinese law, we required our companies to control exports and to control prices. Think of that. Mm-hmm. Think of that for all the other medicines that they're supplying us. And that that argument won the minds of a court of appeals in Manhattan that overturned a jury verdict in Brooklyn 
in federal court, and that jury said, yes, this clearly was antitrust. But the, but the Court of Appeals ruled, well, you can't expect Chinese companies to abide by both U.S. and Chinese law, which effectively legitimizes cartel behavior for everything China sells. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and the case has gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was sent back to the Court of Appeals, and we'll see what happens. But if this is what's, this is what's documented, if this is what we see is happening, where deliberate manipulation of the market for penicillin, for ascorbic acid, what other therapeutic ingredients is it happening with? And once China gains a dominant market share in generics, and by the way, China Rx is the first book to name the generic drugs being made in China by Chinese companies. It's HIV-AIDS medicines, Alzheimer's, for Parkinson's, epilepsy, antidepressants. Cancer. I tell young women, right. yeah, uh, yeah, cancer chemotherapies. I tell young women their birth control pills might be coming from China, and they want to go look to see, well, do mine come from there? And there's a, a tips in the back of the book and an appendix on where you can try to find out where your medicines may be coming from. So if we're seeing these cartels and controlling exports, think of it, they're deliberately controlling exports, deliberately controlling price. What's going to happen when China really gains control and achieves its stated aim to become the pharmacy to the world? And a lesson I drew from this as I talk about this is when you when a somebody controls the supply of your medicine, they also control the price. So with all the talk of drug pricing, there's going to come a point in time where members of Congress will have no leverage over Chinese companies and what they charge, and there won't be enough alternatives in the global marketplace because we've documented a growing centralization of the supply of our medicines in a single country. In whatever country it may be, it's not really a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You do, uh, just to be specific on uh, free trade, uh, this was Clinton's 2000 U.S.-China Trade Relations Act of 2000. You do get very uh, direct or blunt. You do have a subtopic heading in the volume called Grand Theft Pharma, in mm. which beyond other practices, China, of course, and this they're infamous, uh, purloining, quote-unquote, intellectual property, hacking academic medical centers, conducting my biomedical research, and this goes on and on. And just to be specific, the book notes that 2,000 or half of active ingredients needed to make a pharmacy uh, depends on uh, Chinese manufacturing. Relative to owning, there was a minor effort by the Congress, and you do make note of this, so it may be worth mentioning here, and if you could comment, and that is, and this was recognized as it relates to certain vaccines. And the Congress did provide some funding to reestablish manufacturing of, I believe it was flu vaccines, wasn't it? Yeah, the, uh, there was a failure in a plant in the U.K. to deliver like 48 million doses of vaccines right before flu season one year in the early 2000s. And so that was very concerning. And Congress eventually appropriated money for uh, supporting in partnership with pharmaceutical companies the uh, manufacturing facility capability for vaccines and other important medicines, um, but mostly primarily vaccines. So there is a tradition here. There is a precedent of Congress putting in subsidies for uh, manufacturing of, in this case, vaccines. Mm-hmm. 
I, I did, you had some great quotations in here. One by, I believe, a, a, a Frenchman, a pharmaceutical executive relative to Grand Theft Pharma, quote unquote. Nobody would imagine that in an industry like pharmaceuticals, you have gangsters. And uh, you do note and spend some time on medical devices as well, similar behavior, similar effect. Um, but let's go to uh, the FDA. So, of course, the Food and Drug Administration has regulatory authority to ensure the safety of any number of products, certainly uh, generics, branded drugs, biologics, biosimilars, and the list goes on, medical devices. Um, but throughout the book, you have discussion about the FDA, and largely thematically, uh, you note that uh, their budget is extremely uh, limited. They test a, just a small fraction of safety of, of, of these active ingredients, and then uh, there are oftentimes uh, limitations in providing, despite having an office, establishing offices in China in 08, uh, regulatory oversight. So can you give uh, provide an overview of uh, the FDA's efforts, success, and challenges? Sure. Uh, the FDA, uh, after the heparin incident, and there were about 246 reports of deaths associated with heparin to the FDA, I think that's a, a very lower range estimate because mm-hmm. it's so hard, so hard to show cause and effect between a contaminated drug with a lethal toxin and a patient um, being harmed by it. So the FDA got more authority to do inspections uh, in China and other countries, uh, had a, uh, they received funding through a fee-based approach where companies actually have to pay the FDA a fee. They have to register. You know, for years, the FDA didn't even have an accurate list of who was making our medicines or their addresses and contact information, very fundamental information. Because the FDA was set up to oversee a domestic industry, not one that's globalized and stretched around the world. So the FDA does do inspections uh, in China and other countries. And a, a challenge, though, is that they can pick up some things, uh, David, but it's like when I, if you tell your kids to clean their room and you come in and you inspect it, inspections are not a guarantee of quality. Or it's like the Joint Commission coming in and inspecting hospitals. That is not a guarantee of quality. There has to be a culture. There has to be a commitment from the very top of the organization that we're going to do everything right because we know that patients are trusting us to do everything right. Every pill, every vial, every patient, every time. And so unless and until there's that culture, um, all the inspections in the world, is this is way above uh, what the FDA can do. At some point you have to, it's built on trust. Mm-hmm. that manufacturers will do the right thing, that their suppliers will do the right thing. And um, there hasn't been that culture. China is still in the process of developing that culture. It still has a long way to go, and it took a long time for the United States to develop that culture. But then the new risk that comes as they endeavor to move up the quality um, chain here is that the U.S. is becoming more and more dependent on a single country as more manufacturing moves there. And I think it's just a matter of time before China overtakes India in the production of generics, simply because China has an industrial policy to do that. Its stated aim is to become the pharmacy to the world. 
India doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. And once, once you've got that, you have enormous leverage. And when you control the supply of medicines again, you control the price. And all the public policy here in Washington will have limited effect if we allow the continuation of this narrowing of the supply chain in a single country. Right. You do note that uh, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown had an 08 bill, Transparency in Drug Labeling Act, but as you note, that was quickly lobbied into uh, the bin. It was quickly killed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, this and gets you know, a- I asked, yeah, I asked an industry person, so why do you think they killed it? And this person said, it's a great quote, uh, if you have it there, you can read it, but this person said, well, the industry thought it probably wouldn't be good for business if our customers knew <laughs> where their drugs were made. Because remember, this was all happening around uh, the melamine contamination and thousands of dogs and cats, beloved pets of American owners, um, died mm-hmm. uh, from kidney failure because of melamine contamination. In some ways, it was the same playbook as heparin. Let's find a cheap substitute put it in there, um, and uh, turns out to be toxic. You know, I, so, I, thank you. I, I should note, I, I feel like I'd, I'd be somewhat remiss, but actually uh, in September of uh, 2017, and probably the worst case of, call it, uh, nonfeasance and the FDA's part relative to the safety of uh, medications, and uh, I interviewed Paul Weinberg, uh, the title, this was September of 2017, Blood on Their Hands, How Greedy Companies, Inept Bureaucracy, and Bad Science Killed Thousands of Hemophiliacs. And this was uh, blood products tainted with HIV and relative deaths worldwide, uh, five to six figures, uh, conserv- well, five, five figures conservatively in deaths worldwide. Uh, you do note in your text um, that serious drug reactions are vastly, as you say, because of the difficulties of proving correlation, are vastly uh, underreported. Um, let's go to, um, uh, and just I'll just read one. Uh, your book is just filled with so many uh, poignant, uh, illustrative. Uh, this is by a, another European, uh, Dr. Chris Oldenhoff, uh, European Active Pharmaceutical Ingredients Committee. Producers in China may submit false documents and refuse audits conducted by or for, for customers. If an audit or inspection is announced, the facility is in some cases immediately closed down to stop inspectors from entering. Often there is no respect for European laws and regulations when these are not enforced by inspectors. Competition based mostly on price off with little regard to patient safety was gradually destroying or gradually destroyed European active agreement industry. Same could be said for uh, the U.S. But let's go to... Um, national security, and here you quote uh, General John Adams relative to the Americans' vulnerability, quote-unquote, Americans' vulnerability in this regard is frightening, excessive, and unwise outsourcing of American, and constitutes unwise outsourcing of American uh, manufacturing. And you do give the example of what the Chinese did to the Japanese relative to providing them for their auto Prius industry rare earth elements. So there is... um, there is a national security risk, so can you say more about that? Sure, there really is a national security risk if you think about it. Um, for those of your listeners who are in New York or Washington, D.C., uh, after the um, anthrax attacks, the U.S. government 
bought about 20 million doses of doxycycline, and we don't make it here. And so uh, it was uh, purchased from a reputable European company, and I spoke to the CEO of that firm, and he said he had to get the starting material from China. And when I mentioned that to an industry person whom I interviewed, this person said, well, what if China's the anthrax attacker? Or let's think about the young men and women in the South China Sea on those naval vessels, and they're dependent on the adversary for the key ingredient in um, a last resort antibiotic. Uh, This is a huge national security issue. China can wield its... um, dominant share, if not monopolistic, uh, control over the production of certain medicines uh, to extract something from the United States, to extract concessions. And it is true that uh, the Chinese government has threatened the United States in the past with drug shortages if government officials didn't do certain things that it wanted. So this predates all the current discussion about tariffs and the so-called trade war. There was a trade war going on a long time ago. And that history of China using its uh, commodity production as leverage to get what it wants, that's a very challenging situation. You know, say if there's a global pandemic, the United States will have to stand in line behind other countries to get supplies of – and we're mostly talking here – David, about the generic drugs, which mm-hmm. are 90% of prescriptions that right. people take. And we're, we're basically losing that generic production capability. And I worry that the generic drugs are becoming the new orphan drugs. And that's because you have these big buying consortiums, and they're hammering down on price on the manufacturers, like the farmers. They just get a few cents for you know a quart of milk that we buy in the grocery store. But the same thing with manufacturers. They're hammering down on price. And I worry about Western generic companies if they'll be able to survive, especially because they're actually competing also against the Chinese government, which is more than willing to subsidize their domestic firms. So we're in danger of losing whatever we have left of generic drug manufacturing. I took an antibiotic earlier this year, and uh, it's long story short, but there's a plant uh, here in the U.S. that was just went through from GlaxoSmithKline British company to Dr. Reddy's bought at the Indian company, and now it was bought out by an unknown company in the Middle East in rural Tennessee. So these are the only people left who are producing our medicines. These are no longer, you know, the brand name companies. Now there are branded generics out there, and they certainly have to go with the market in terms of production uh, to some degree, but. I do think that our generic drugs are becoming the new orphan drugs. You know, that's particularly chilling. Uh, it is. When you note that that's 90% of uh, what uh, patients consume in pharmaceuticals. Um, absolutely. I, I could just, you know, who doesn't have this story? Perhaps my family. Um, we could not get earlier this year uh, the best cancer agent, uh, immunotherapy agent, uh, just this, what's considered relative to the research evidence, the second uh, most effective. When I looked into exhaustively trying to find out where the, the better um, product, I, I literally could not find out. All I could find learn was Georgetown Hospital couldn't get it, um, which is pretty 
uh, chilling, sobering. Let's let's try to uh, somewhat end on a, a more hopeful note. Your last chapter, formal chapter, you do have a concluding four-page section on how to find out where your meds are made, quote-unquote. Uh, you did mention that section, but you do have a last 14-chapter 10-step uh, plan to bring it home. So uh, if you could note a few of those policies you propose by way of trying to, uh, let's just say, phrase it as reduce our exposure to this potential problem. Uh, thank you, David. I think the first thing we need to do is a change in mindset about our medicines. They're, they're viewed now, particularly the generics and their key ingredients, as cheap commodities. We need to switch that and think of our medicines more like a strategic asset, particularly our generic antibiotics, like we do oil, like we do food commodities, like, like wheat and corn. Like we and do, the federal government like makes we do sure submarines, that we right? You mentioned yeah. submarines, yeah. yes. And the, so the federal government makes sure that we don't run out mm-hmm. of oil, of food. And we need to do the same thing with our medicines. The second thing we need to do is what we do with oil and food commodities. There's somebody that actually knows in the federal government who's making our medicines and the key components to manufacture them. Right now, this was really a remarkable finding, that it's no one's job in the federal government to know who controls our drug supply. And one of the key recommendations right off the bat, could be done through executive order, is to set up an interdepartmental, interagency, permanent capability whose job is to keep track of where our medicines are being made, their suppliers, and to do country and company risk assessments, as well as supply and demand forecasting, not only to prevent us from having getting caught in this narrow supply chain, uh, but to ensure that we, you know, have capability that we don't run out and have interruptions in supply like we do now with shortages. And the third recommendation is that, you know, for some of the key ingredients and maybe some finished drugs we may want to consider incentives for domestic manufacturing or to keep some manufacturing here in the U.S., particularly for the U.S. Defense Department. The U.S. Defense Department had to start buying um, medicinal products from China because there were no alternatives. Same with the VA. So we need to change that um, equation to make it more profitable, make it feasible, let alone profitable, and this may sound like an anomaly to your listeners who see, you know, some drug spike, uh, price spikes for generics. For a lot of these, it's been a race to the bottom on price, and we need to recognize that these are really important medicines. And you can't do it on the cheap, but we can do it for the fair price. Mm-hmm. We could call it the Dr. Bob Allen uh, Act. Well, it, that case uh, was recently settled. There was no... Um, it, it, it was a jury, the only case that was allowed to go to jury trial from a multi-district litigation where all these cases are brought together. And right before jury, the trial, the case was settled. Uh, there was no admission that the contaminant actually, uh, that one that he got heparin from that was contaminated or that the heparin caused his him to eventually die. He died three months after his um, admission to the hospital was a horrific death. No admission of that, um, but um, there certainly were people who were harmed by this 
by this product. And by the way, it was after the trade deal was signed, we opened up free trade with China, that the manufacturer, the U.S.-based manufacturer, started buying the active ingredient for heparin from China. Right, that's a Baxter Pharmaceutical. And just to note, in that instance or event, um, this contaminated heparin was shipped to, as you know, 11 countries or 10 beyond the U.S., so a worldwide um, tragedy. And we're still seeing uh, problems with heparin. European uh, regulatory agency equivalent to the FDA just uh, put an import alert on a company in China and I'm told that some of the many of the same people who were running the heparin industry back then are still running it at the same time. In fact, just four years ago, the FDA went into a heparin plant that, that was selling it to the U.S. And it turns out they were not the actual manufacturer. The real manufacturer was a company the FDA had banned, apparently because of its reported involvement in the heparin contamination. You know, it's somewhat, it's not funny, but it comes from pigs, and it's not as if we don't raise enough pigs or pork in this country. Um, and that was a concern with selling Smithfield pork to China, to a Chinese company. So the vener- so if you eat bacon in the morning or go to McDonald's and have a sausage McMuffin, uh, the pork probably came from Smithfield, which is now owned by a Chinese company, and that deal was done in 24 hours because of a huge loan from the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Well, Rosemary, we're at our we're at our time. I do want to say uh, thank you. I will say I hope to see you or hear about your the follow-up work on this or the ripple this uh, causes. We're going to have a lot of drug discussions. Uh, the expectation is certainly on the House with the D's back in uh, this coming Congress, the 116th in January. So. Let's hope that this uh, concern uh, gains increasing attention. But I will say now, thank you for your time. I'm generally appreciative for your discussing your work. Oh, thank you, David, for a chance to share it with people who need to know, because most people don't know, and knowledge is the first step to taking action. So thank you. All right. Thanks again. Bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.